So it was initially when a child is born, the, the foreskin is fused to the head of the glands. And rather than removing all of it, the original version simply removed the amount that, that was over the top of the glands. I, I have this sort of thesis that basically most of the problems in the world stem to patterns people developed in childhood. Welcome back to Reconditioned with me, Lauren Vaknin. Thank you so much for being here once again. Um, if you are new here, welcome, welcome. This is the podcast that is a one-stop shop for all things wellness and growth. Um, and if you are a regular listener, welcome back and thank you for your continued support. Um, so today's episode was a very uncomfortable one for me and I was okay with that because I'm okay with getting uncomfortable um, in my discomfort, getting comfortable with my discomfort. And because I think that uncomfortable conversations are the exact thing we need to be doing for if we want to see any sort of growth and evolution in this world and in ourselves as human beings. As someone that is Jewish, has been raised in the Jewish community, circumcision has been a normal thing. It's never been anything that most people have questioned, apart from very few people that I know. And for me, I started questioning it a few years ago. Being in the natural health community, many people were talking about it and I felt just like it was an affront to me. How dare they talk about this like it, you know, and, and I always had this feeling, this intuition that it's barbaric. And those words are even used by people who still go, yeah, but we do it anyway. But when other people outside of my community were saying these things, I felt completely, I, I felt like it was an affront to me and to my community and how dare they judge something they don't know. But then I decided to look deeper into it and then I came across Brendan Marota and his film, uh, American Circumcision, and I was hearing him on, on podcasts and I decided to open my mind to it because whether or not I have a cultural bias around something is no reason for me to believe that something is a truth. And what I've learned as a result of going down that rabbit hole has blown my mind, been very insightful. And I'd just like to preface that this was un as uncomfortable for me as it will be for many people from cultures who do circumcise, who are listening. So I hope that you will listen anyway and give this some time because this is a podcast where I bring all information that might be uncomfortable. As you know, if you are a regular listener, my whole ethos in life uh, in what I do is about informed choice and a preventative approach to health um, so so to start with the latter if we want to live based on a preventative approach to our health surely we need to be looking at everything that we're doing to gather whether or not we're putting ourselves at risk later on and I look at that in terms of everything, nutrition, pharmaceuticals, the way we live our lives, down to, you know, the EMFs in my house. I can't quantify how that might, may or may not cause cancer or other issues because of how it's affecting the mitochondria in my cells. I can't quantify it. But I believe in it. I know enough about it to believe 
that it will put me at risk. And though I can't quantify any of those things, and often we can't say, well, if I do this and do this and do this and do this, or if I hadn't have done this, I wouldn't have got cancer. What I do believe is that there are many things and everything's a cumulative effect, many things that lead to our sickness. So by looking at all of those things, and then that comes to my first point of informing ourselves on all the aspects that could potentially impact our well-being, which is pretty much everything we ever do, ever, from the thoughts we keep, to the food we eat, to the water we drink, to the people we socialize with, to the places we go, everything affects our well-being, right? So all this just to say that this conversation, however uncomfortable it might be for you to listen to, um, is an extremely important one. For us to just start the conversation, let's just open this conversation and have these discussions so that moving forward, we can make better informed decisions. Um, so Brendan Marotta, I will just read a little bit about um, Brendan. He is a filmmaker and author and speaker. His film, American Circumcision, won multiple awards and played on Netflix. He's the author of four books, including Children's Justice, which explores the treatment of children as a, as a social justice issue. He's spoken at Yale University, the International Conference on Men's Issues, the International Symposium on Genital Autonomy and Children's Rights, and the Association for Pre- and Perinatal Psychology. Brendan hosts a podcast called The Brendan Marotta Show. He currently lives with his family in Austin, Texas, where all the cool people live now, apparently. Uh, so um, I guess definitely an authority on the subject. Um, and what I love is how he talks about birth and how um, mothers being treated during birth plays into this a lot and I know many of my listeners are interested in that subject and know the importance of us talking about that. So um, I will let us get on with the episode now because it really is truly eye-opening and as usual I would love to hear your views on it, how you feel about it. If this has triggered any emotions in you, let's open up the discussion. Um, just come to my Instagram and have a chat with me about it on there. Thank you for listening. And thank you for uh, to our sponsors for today, Amrita and Sensate. And as usual, if you do enjoy the podcast, please consider sharing this episode with a friend or on social media and consider leaving me a lovely review on Apple or Spotify. Thank you so much and enjoy the episode. The advice I get asked for probably more than anything else is supplements. Where do I get my high quality supplements? I am so particular about my supplements and I research every single ingredient right down to what the capsule shell is made of, which is why my clients trust my recommendations so much. Now, because I'm super picky, I get all my supplements from Amrita Nutrition and I found them about a decade ago because they were the only UK stockist to stock seeking health products, which were developed specifically for MTHFR and I've stayed with them ever since because they literally stock the absolute highest quality brands from all over the world, like Moss Nutrition, Quicksilver, Apex, and so many others that I love. And I know that anything I get from them is going to be the utmost highest quality. They also offer personal support at every stage from their customer care team and in-house nutritional practitioners. So you can order using practitioner invite code Lauren, which will get you 10% off all supplements 
which will be applied to every order once you've set up an account. And you can also create your own protocols once you've set up an account, which is pretty cool. And I've gone ahead and created a collection of all my favorite supplements with Amrita, which you can find in the show notes or on my website. Otherwise, just visit amritanutrition.co.uk and don't forget to use code Lauren for 10% off. Thank you so much to Amrita for supporting our mission here at Reconditioned. Brendan, what I want to ask is why did you make this documentary? I made this documentary because I feel like the issue that it covers is extremely important. So if there was any other issue that affected every man in America, every partner of a man, every parent and child, I think people would realize that that's an incredibly important issue, especially if that issue permanently altered someone's body and their relationship to their sexuality for the rest of their life. And this issue intersects with religion, with medicine, with your relationship to yourself, your relationships to your family, the most intimate aspects of your life. It's literally carved into people's bodies. So if there's any other issue that had that big an impact on people's lives and was that significant and and wasn't talked about openly and publicly, I think the question would be, why aren't there dozens of documentaries on that issue, right? Mm -hmm. So the way that this issue is framed often in the dominant media is that it's sort of framed not as it actually is, as something that affects you know virtually every person in America, but as something that's a one-time decision that you never have to think about again. And I think that that framing is a sort of psychological defense against actually looking at the issue, against seeing the impact that it has on people, against exploring the feelings that people have that come up around it. I know that you're all in the UK, which is a, a much lower circumcision rate and probably a, a different relationship to this issue than, than people have in the United States. But in the United States, it is extremely common. It is the norm rather than the exception. Yeah. And for the rest of the world, I don't think the rest of the world knows that because the, the rest of the world generally keeps their children intact. Uh, and in, in countries and, and cultures that do not circumcise their young boys it's often seen the same way that people see female genital cutting as you know why would this is harmful this is the cutting of a child and of course a child doesn't have any cultural conditioning of any kind especially at that early in age so for for a young child it the pain is the same whether it's a boy or a girl so the reason i made this film is that i, I saw this issue for what it was and i had a background in filmmaking and i felt like that was a way that i could talk about it mm. and it was a very long process making the film, but um, it's out now and you can find it on circumcisionmovie.com. Yeah, so for anyone who hasn't listened to the intro yet, of course, the film we're talking about is American Circumcision. And I mean, one of the things you said in there was people's uncomfortable, difficult feelings about it. And I'll preface this by saying that I am Jewish. I was raised Jewish. And yes, in England, we have a very different relationship with circumcision. It's not commonplace for boys to be circumcised at birth like it is in the States. Um, however, all Jews on the whole, apart from a very small percentage and all Muslims the same, are circumcised, you know, boys are circumcised. Um, for Jews, it's on day eight. Now, I'm doing this episode with you regardless of how uncomfortable it's been for me 
since hearing mm. um I've been hearing about it for a few years um I'm very much obviously in the world of natural health holistic parenting and so it's been a discussion for quite a while and as a mother of a seven-year-old boy I of course didn't want to hear it however I talk about very uncomfortable things people things that other people find very uncomfortable and don't want to listen to or don't want to hear because it's uncomfortable and maybe they already made that decision when it comes to healthcare, parenting, whatever it might be. And I want to have those discussions because I think that regardless of how uncomfortable we might feel about something, doesn't take away from the fact that it might be a truth. And I never want my own confirmation bias to determine how I view something. So I'm coming at this from perhaps, and I don't know, maybe you have done other podcasts with people who have the same perspective and background, um, but it has been a journey of me hearing about it a lot and then hearing you speak on another podcast and then forcing myself, <laughs> um, really forcing myself to watch the documentary. I remember when my son was born, knowing I was having a boy, being very much in the natural health world and feeling like this does not feel okay to me and had heard even in our community we hear the words a lot oh it's barbaric and yet people still do it um and from my perspective of people that I know very few Jewish people don't go ahead with it and when I when I started questioning it my kind of reasoning around it was I talk about things in healthcare where people go, yeah, but they're fine and my child's fine. And then we look at it and we go, what's your metrics for fine? Look at that. Let's look at that child and let's see, are they actually fine? When I was assessing this at the very beginning, I thought, well, pretty much every man I've ever known has had it. Obviously, I've known non-Jewish men, but pretty much every, every my, my dad, my uncles, my husband, my everyone in my sphere has been circumcised and they really seem fine. So that was my reconciliation with myself for a few years. And coming from a Sephardi Jewish culture, um, you know, Middle Eastern Jewish, where my, my dad's Moroccan and the culture is very rich and the traditions are very strong, I almost felt like I had to make that decision for my father, which is mental because I've done that with nothing else. I have gone against convention in every part of my life and my parenting. Um, in terms of what is mainstream and accepted. So it's very uncomfortable, but I think it's very important for us to have the discussion. So I just thought that it would be a really good place to kind of preface for anyone else listening that is in my position. It's not that I'm not finding this uncomfortable, but I also think we need to educate ourselves on the matter. Something that has always been a bit of a challenge for me, and I know it is to most people I speak to, is fitting in the time for all the spiritual and self-development practices I want to do. You know, I'd like to meditate and do breath work and yoga and walk in nature and connect with my guides and journaling and so much more, all the things every day. But we can't do all the things every day. I'm a mum, I run a business. And even as someone who really does put this stuff first, it's pretty impossible to fit it all in. So the one thing that's really helped me over the past year is the Sensate. It is a piece of health tech that fits in the palm of your hand and it basically sends infrasonic waves through the chest to activate the vagus nerve and calm the autonomic nervous system. 
and you use it while playing the specially composed audio within the app. It's actually pretty genius. And honestly, at the moment with my days being more full on than they've ever been, using the Sensate is really the one thing that I know will work on so many aspects of my well-being at once. So even if I haven't had time to do any other practices during the day, I lie down at night and I use the Sensate for 10 to 20 minutes before I sleep and it reduces cortisol levels, it calms my brainwave states, it gives me great optimized sleep, it calms anxiety, and because of how it activates the vagus nerve, it deepens my meditation. So I can kind of do all that in one go. And I also take it everywhere with me. So if I've got 10 minutes in the car while I'm waiting for the school gates to open, I can just do it then without the pressure of knowing that meditation would be a bit challenging when I'm probably in heightened brainwave states at that point. So for me generally, it's been pretty life-changing. And if what I spoke about resonates with you at all, you can get £30 off the Sensate by visiting getsensate.com and using code Lauren30. That's G-E-T-S-E-N-S-A-T-E.com. Lauren 30. Thank you so much to Sensate for supporting our mission here at Reconditioned. Um, and, and just from that, you know, a lot of girls that I know think that uncircumcised penises are less attractive. Can we start there? Well, first, I just, I love the bravery that you're bringing to this conversation. I know that just speaking about this issue brings up a lot of feelings for people and for someone who comes from a culture where that's not only normative but you can be ostracized for for questioning it i, I know that takes a lot of courage so i just Thank i want to commend you for that i appreciate that and that, when you say ostracized it, you really do i mean there are certain schools that children can't get into or they could, if they if the boy, for instance, wants to marry a girl in the United Synagogue, which is kind of the standard non-reform, non-progressive synagogue, they can't do that unless they're circumcised, which is why men who convert to Judaism have to get circumcised in adulthood. Um, and do you know what? Let's start somewhere else, because actually what I think is a really good place to start and what I really took away from your your documentary, maybe more than anything else, was the idea that actually what the Torah, what is written in the Torah in terms of why we do circumcision and how to do it is completely different to what we do now, right? Yeah. So in, in the Hellenistic period, um, the, the original version of circumcision removed far less tissue than the modern version. So it was initially, when a child is born, the, the foreskin is fused to the head of the glands. And rather than removing all of it, the original version simply removed the amount that, that was over the top of the glands. And in the Roman area, in the Hellenistic period, there were a lot of uh, Jewish people that wanted to participate in Roman athletic games, which were done in the nude. And they wanted to fit into Roman society. And so what they would do is they would take the remaining foreskin they had and pull it forward. So it looked like that part of the body was covered. And, you know, in Roman society, it would be considered very lewd to have the glands of the penis exposed because the only time that happens is when a man gets an erection. And, and actually, you know, you were mentioning earlier the idea that people have a sort of aesthetic preference. The, the version that 
you describe some women as preferring is the version that looks erect, right? So when, when, when people say that, it's like, well, of course you like the version that, you know, looks like it's attracted to you, right? right. Or is turned on. Um, it makes sense that someone would, would be drawn to that. But there's also something really questionable about applying an adult sexual desire to a child and then surgically altering the child to fit that right and and so the original version men could pull that forward and make it look like uh they were intact or that they hadn't had the foreskin removed and at the time the the jewish rabbis who were involved in this changed circumcision from removing that to removing the entire foreskin so that they couldn't do that so that they couldn't uh, assimilate or fit into roman culture or pretend that they weren't jewish and so now when the the when circumcision is done the foreskin is broken away from the head of the glands and all of it is removed so they pull it forward and remove all of it such that that isn't possible and so i think that's important because it it really shows what a sort of cultural construct circumcision is there's no men aren't born with some like dotted line that says cut here you know um it is something that human beings created and made an arbitrary decision on and now we can change that at any point that we want mm -hmm. um and i've of course i know that there's going to be some jewish people who have take a lot of offense to the idea that human beings created this or that it's a, it's an arbitrary but you did say that um, the rabbis of the time made the change so it wasn't something that came whatever anyone who's listening's views right. are on this because that is another conversation altogether but whether or not you know god came to abraham and said do this and that came from God but this was rabbis who are human beings who said we don't like you doing this so here let's yes. cut it all off so, so the version we have now is not the version that existed at the time of Abraham or Moses mm -hmm. it is something different that has been altered and specifically altered to remove more and and be more harmful than the previous version yeah which is so for me, that's a point that I really hope people will grasp onto that because that was the clincher for me, right? Mm. When with anything that we listen to, any authority, whether it's religion, the state, whatever it is, it's always based on a piece of information that could always be misinformation. And without educating ourselves and blindly following the herd, we fall at risk of following that misinformation um at the detriment of ourselves and our children um so it's very interesting to me to know that potentially an entire nation of people from five thousand years ago could have been or from you know the roman times could have been following something that actually was nothing to do with their culture is it the same for muslims i wonder so i'm less familiar with islam um my, what little I know is that it's often done as a coming of age ritual when the child is, you know, what we could, would consider still a child, but older. Mm. So it's not done in infancy. And that is a, it's still a trauma in, in, in for the child, but it is a different type of trauma. So when done to an infant, it's preverbal. The child doesn't know when this experience will end. They don't know what's happening to them. They don't know why it's happening to them. Um, you know, when it's done to uh, an infant in a hospital, there's the experience too of being separated from mom and dad and 
Um, you know, that they, they, there's an abandonment feeling there. And of course, when it's done in ceremony, when the family's around, there's a betrayal feeling there because, you know, mom and dad are allowing this to happen. So it's going to be, and, and of course, every human being is different. So every person's going to process this differently. There is some uh, scientific data and studies around the impact of early life trauma. There is data that even pro-circumcision medical organizations have acknowledged that shows that the early life trauma of circumcision causes a lasting change in behavior that that you could call memory. So if some, something happens to someone, then they behave differently after that is a form of memory. It's just preverbal memory because the child isn't able to articulate it the way you and I can, you know, we, we can talk about what we did yesterday and um, what are what our plans are for the future. But um, somatic memory is a bit closer to the memory that an animal has, you know, if you were to abuse an animal, they act differently af afterward, even though they might not have any kind of narrative around that they have an experience that's changed them in some way and and circumcision functions the same way and there's again data and research that shows that it does so culturally it's a little different and then of course every person's processing their own trauma differently yeah i do a lot of work with trauma um so it's something that i think that's why intuitively for me i was like this doesn't feel right because I'm aware that babies hold trauma. We talk a lot about, you know, cry it out when babies are left to cry and what that does to their brain chemistry. And we know through multiple studies, enough studies that you can't possibly question it, that it causes lasting change in the brain chemistry. And, you know, so going back to that thing where we say, yeah, but, I, you know, where the man might go, yeah, but I'm fine. I had it done and I'm fine. And I would always ask people to look at, well, let's look at your attachment style. How's your memory and your brain fog and, you know, how you feel about relationships and, you know, um, especially the attachment thing, I think, is a, a, a big deal. But generally kind of how you function in life, how you operate in life. I, I And the, the difficulty is when you can't quantify something which is all my work, really, because I work with, you know, everything woo woo. Uh, and I'm a big believer that not everything um, needs to be quantified. Sometimes we move over to that kind of the feminine energy of just the intuition and the knowing, and that's enough. Um, so I, I very much believe in the somatic uh, trauma and how the body, th there's a book called um, The Body Holds the, Sp the Score, or The Body Keeps the Score. The Body Keeps Score. I Keeps have score, that on yeah. my shelf behind me. Oh, do you? Yeah, brilliant yeah. book. And um, really talks about, you know, for anyone reading or listening to this and thinking yeah but I am fine or my husband's fine or my kids are fine or whatever um I would ask people to look around them and, and look at these men in their life and wonder are they actually fine though and to start questioning that um I'd like to take this to a question that I know a lot of my listeners who are from my culture will be thinking and it was the question that my mum had when I told her I was doing this episode, which was, but we've always been told it's more hygienic and that's why the royal family do it. And, you know, it's better for us. And that's why we do it, because all the rules in the Torah really were for hygiene and health, et cetera, et cetera. So can you speak to that a bit? Yeah, it's one of those. It's, it's what you could call a thought terminating cliche. So, OK, hygienic, how? Do we clean the body with knives, cutting body parts off? Um, is there something unclean or dirty about the male body or sexuality? You know, once you start digging into that phrase and say, like, what do you actually mean by that? You know, and also is, is hygiene 
your your primary value as a parent and a person in relationship with a child do you want the child to feel clean or do you want them to feel loved and are you willing to cause them pain for this value of cleanliness uh once you start getting into what that what people mean by that I, it's one of those sort of cultural sayings that doesn't have a lot behind it and if you go into the history of it uh you know the circumcision began as a medical practice in the victorian era as a cure for masturbation so they they thought that masturbation was the cause of all of these social ills uh, there's a lot of medical histories that talk about this this sort of campaign against masturbation in the victorian era and their definition of of hygiene was not just physical cleanliness but moral cleanliness there was something dirty or bad about sexuality according to the victorians and and that they needed to uh fix this in some way and and the pain of circumcision in their view was intentional to cause people to associate that part of the body with pain and be less likely to you know do this horrible practice of self-abuse and of course you know victorians were wildly successful in that campaign no one does that anymore um but it, it's one of those things where the cultural value behind that claim has changed so now i think most modern people see sexuality as a good thing they want people to feel pleasure when they're experiencing that part of their life. And so the idea that that is reducing that in some way has sort of dropped out of the meme, but the meme has stayed. It's it's one of those, um, I guess you'd say a vestigial cultural saying where the, the ide ideology behind it is gone, but the thing is sort of still remaining. It's a bit like how we say bless you when someone sneezes that began in the middle ages is like a Catholic blessing to stop the black plague. And, now we don't cure diseases through Catholic blessings, but the phrase "bless" you know, so you sneeze and someone doesn't say "bless you." It's like, are you this person being weird or yeah. something? You know. Um, so it's one of those things where I don't think people have examined it, and, and examining it would bring up all of the feelings and cultural conditioning and things that we're talking about and getting into. Uh, and also, I wanted to mention you said something earlier that I really appreciated, which was the idea that not every everything important can't be quantified, because I think in in Western culture there is a bias towards data to the point where if something can't be quantified in western culture it's sort of seen as uh not true or unimportant and and there's a bias towards things that can be quantified but i, I would say that the most important things in the human experience might not be quantifiable so you the love you have for your child isn't quantifiable i don't think i could do a scientific study to show that you love your kids and that you want the thing that's best for them uh, but we all know that's true. And and similarly, you know, there's a very um, sort of circular discussion I've had with some some uh, doctors and medical professionals around this. We'll, you'll say, you know, we're concerned about this thing. And they'll say, well, there's no evidence for that. You'll say, well, have you done a, a study to find out if there's evidence? No. Why haven't you done a study? Well, there's no evidence for it, you know? And so now there are studies, of course, showing that there is an impact on trauma. There's an impact on sexuality. Um, but things like someone's personal feelings about their body or their relationship to their parents and the the traditions of their parents that's something that isn't a scientific study that's a relationship and so it's processed differently and and the way that we talk about it isn't through data it's through our feelings yeah and you know going back to what you were saying about the in the victorian times i don't know if people are aware that another cure for masturbation in victorian times was clitorectomies um, yes. Because 
masturbation led to hysteria in women and you know god forbid women should experience pleasure so there is this huge um you know cognitive dissonance around it's okay for men but it's not okay for women and let's go there in a second but also you know a thought that came to mind when I was researching this just in terms of the hygiene perspective and I just think it maybe it's just good to 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 say this thought out loud simply because maybe someone will then go oh yeah that makes sense the reason that people think that being uncircumcised is or being intact is um unhygienic is because it's closed and you know stuff can get under I guess but if you think about the vagina it's closed and stuff can get in it so should we cut off the lips of the vagina that was just a thought that came to my mind that I thought maybe that puts more context to why the cultural bias we have around this could very well be a bit wrong yeah, there's a different set of social constructs that exist around men and women. So even, you know, there actually have been some studies that try, have tried to make medical claims about female genital cutting, and they've they've basically been completely ignored and suppressed, and people get really triggered by them, because that isn't how we evaluate women and women's bodies. We, there's an understanding that women have the right to their own bodies, that... that um, touching or doing things to a woman's body without her consent is morally wrong. And yet there's sort of a different standard around men and men's bodies. And I think a lot of the reason that this um, persists or hasn't ended is because of the cultural ideas we have about men, that men are sort of expected to be tough, that they're, they're expected to endure. And of course, those cultural constructs are meant for men to to put aside their own individual uh, pain and, and go and do things for the tribe. In other words, men are expected to do things like go to war or, or work hard and, and push through their own individual pain for the good of others. But in this case, there isn't a for the good of others. There's no, um, you know, social, like there's, there's no way in which the, the larger group benefits from a child being harmed. And again, this cultural construct is not being put on adult men, it's being put on children. Mm -hmm. So it's a way in which that those sort of cultural constructs have been hijacked by other cultural forces. And, and then there's, you know, similar to what we were talking about earlier with, you know, cultural traditions and, and psychological defenses, there's this also fear of like, okay, well, we might be looking at those cultural constructs too, if we start questioning this. Mm -hmm. And so in a sense, this issue is really simple. It's like, your child is wonderful they're, you know they're born perfect and uh you don't cutting body parts off of children is bad that's pretty much you know we can end the podcast there it was wonderful thank you for listening um but all the other stuff around it of like oh well we have to get into masculinity and we have to get into religion and culture and we have to get into trauma and psychology that's where it becomes more complex mm. because now we're not just looking at you know this what what the dominant media frame says this one small thing we're looking at your entire value system and who you are as a person and what your values are as a parent. And that's the stuff that I think uh, brings up a lot for people. What is the difference? Is there any difference physically, physiologically, emotionally, psychologically between male circumcision and female genital cutting? 
Um, yeah, so there's sort of a yes and no answer here. Of there's In some places, there is not a difference, and in some places, there is a slight difference. Ethically, there isn't. So, so if you cut off a part of someone's body, you know, it's not like if you only cut off their fingers, that that's somehow ethically better than if you cut off their hand. Both are the same, you know, they're both are considered assault. They're both considered a violation of that person's body. They would both be a human rights violation if done systematically. Uh, and it's also difficult to answer because there are different types of female circumcision. This is something a lot of people in Western society don't know. So the World Health Organization classifies four types of female genital cutting. The lightest form of female genital cutting involves just a ritual nick where they draw blood and there actually isn't anything cut off. And the most severe form is what people usually think of where basically, and, and pardon the graphicness of this, but everything is cut off and the woman's body is sewn shut. And, and when people talk about female genital cutting in the media, they often are talking about the fourth most severe version and because they want to frame it as this awful thing and, and use the most graphic and awful version possible. Yet the lightest version is less severe than male circumcision. And in the United States, there was a federal law against female genital cutting that got overturned uh, through a court case where uh, the federal government was trying to go after uh, um, a group of people who were doing the ritual nick, the lightest version of female genital cutting. And they were arguing in court, no, this is much lighter than male circumcision, which you allow. So this is our religious right, and we should be allowed to do this. And the, the case ended up being settled on a technicality where the, the court basically said, we don't think the federal government can regulate female cutting, genital cutting. So that overturned the federal law in the United States. Um, it, it, from my perspective, it looks like the judge knew he was being handed something really hot and sort of made a ruling that meant he didn't have to answer the question as, of, you know, is there a religious right to cut genitals? Because that would also get into... Um, male genital cutting as well, which I think the court wanted to avoid. Um, but there is an argument to be made that they're, they're highly comparable and there are forms of female genital cutting that are less severe than male circumcision. So in terms of the impact on the person um, and their body, I think there's a misconception that um, the, the basically the female body has lots of nerve endings and, and men basically just have a rod. But actually, if you look at the science, the, the male foreskin has the most nerve endings of any part of the male body. And actually, the ridge band, the very tip of the male foreskin, has the most. So when people talk about how many nerve endings there are in you know women's bodies versus men's bodies, they're often making that calculation based on a circumcised male body and not taking into account the amount of nerve endings in the male foreskin. So the, That's the same really way that interesting. We, Can I stop you yeah. there for a moment? Because sure. I... I teach a lot of kind of sacred sexuality stuff so you know stuff that we we talk about there is how the clitoris has 8000 nerve endings whereas the penis only has the whole penis only has 4000 would that is that based on an uncircumcised penis then so i've heard some people calculate the male foreskin as having um as high as 20000 but again like they're making an estimate based on a small portion of that tissue and sort of multiplying upward. I actually don't know if it's been studied the exact amount, um, but it's comparable to the to the 8,000 that you mentioned. Mm. Um, and, and it's also similar in the sense that, you know, women's bodies can have different types of orgasms from different parts of the body. So something um, 
you know, from the G spot is different from the clitoris and, uh, intact men have reported the same thing that there is a different type of orgasm or sensation of orgasm that comes from just stimulating the foreskin or the ridge band that comes from the head of the penis. But again, I don't think that most men are in touch with their sexuality enough to notice that or have the anatomy to test it. Um, and of course the frenulum of the, the foreskin, again, like people have different, you know, who are circumcised have different amounts of that left. Um, and, you know, and, and even in countries where the, basically all of the women are intact, I think most women also aren't necessarily aware of the different sensations in their bodies. So it's also hard to quantify that way. And then if a man is in touch with it, you know, how do you do like this studies on sexuality, even where the participants haven't had life-altering genital surgery are really scattershot to begin with right um and a lot of the data is self-reported and there's all sorts of things that are challenging there so the 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 nerve endings are comparable and they're the same type of nerve endings right they're meisner's corpuscle nerve endings um that nerve ending is the same in a man as it is in a woman it's just shaped into a different structure basically so again also i think there's this idea um some misconceptions about women's bodies too, where the clitoris is seen as only the very tip that's protruding on women as opposed to the entire structure that goes into the body. Uh, so the, the, even when you hear people talk about female genital cutting, they'll say, well, it removes the entire thing. And it's like, well, you actually, you'd have to like do surgery and pull a whole structure out to do that. Um, but the, the impact on the person is comparable. And of course, emotionally, again, you know, men and women, um, we all have feelings, right? But the, there's a cultural difference in terms of how we perceive men and women's feelings. And I think that also has an impact where um, a woman whose body has been violated might have a different relationship to that because of what people around her will think than a man would. And they're going to have a different feeling and relationship in a culture that sees that violation as normal versus a culture that sees that violation as abnormal. So the, the emotional thing is going to differ person to person, even though there are a lot of similarities. And that's heartbreaking because it just feeds into this toxic masculinity culture that we see ourselves in where men have to be strong and not complain about things. And therefore they go right off into the shadow masculine of being, you know, all about the data and the logic and the pragmatism and not in touch at all with, you know, the intuition and the nurture and, the being and all that great feminine stuff and that's kind of feeding into that more by saying you know we, we, we're going to acknowledge this in women and not so much in men i mean i think even the idea that feelings are a feminine thing is kind of a cultural construct that's a part not of it, a fe not I, feminine as in female but in terms of the masculine feminine energies which we all I should see, okay. which we all should have i teach i teach about um kind of divine feminine divine masculine a yeah. lot and the divi divine masculine would have a balance of both of those um but the idea is that the feminine energies within all of us have kind of been pushed to the side and so the world is run on a dominance of the masculine energies of you know what we said the quantifying which is masculine energy you know the money the capitalism the doing as opposed to the being and a man who has both of those balanced the feminine and the masculine is a very different man you know so um yeah. more in terms of the energy than the gender i see a lot of that too uh, i i have this sort of thesis that basically 
most of the problems in the world stem to patterns people developed in childhood. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of what we call toxic masculinity comes from men enacting things that were, were done to them as children on others when they're in a position of power later. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as a, I heard one, um, there's one woman in my film who's a mother who, who says that basically what circumcision or genital cutting teaches a child is that if you're bigger and stronger than someone else, you get to do what you want to their body. And that's a really dangerous lesson to teach men and a dangerous lesson to teach men in the first primary relationship of their life, the relationship to their mother, which they're going to pattern all their future relationships on. Right. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it, what we call toxic masculinity, I think is really childhood patterns acting out. It's mm -hmm. not actually, uh, what I think people in your community would call divine masculinity or, you know, aligned, you know, true masculinity. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, it's this, you know, it's a wounded boy who had something bad happen to him as a child. And like, now he's big and tough and he's in charge and he's going to get what he wants. Yeah, totally. So then how does that feed into sexuality with men? Does being circumcised lead to more, does the man need more force to feel more pleasure? And then has that led to more brutality? So it changes the the mechanics of sex. So with with an intact man, the foreskin is gliding over the head of the penis, and he is uh, getting stimulation not just from the friction, but from his own body rubbing against himself. And and what I've heard from uh, people who've researched this is that that means that the man needs shorter strokes because he's getting more stimulation, whereas someone who doesn't have that basically has to rely on friction and uh i don't know how i'll say this jackhammer a bit more right and and it's just a case of you that the person is compensating for the nerve endings they don't have and interestingly by the way I, I i've spoken with women who've survived female genital cutting and what one of them told me is that she had uh an experience of sexuality that she describes is very similar to what um, men report where she was going from partner to partner and partner to partner, um, basically searching for a pleasure her body couldn't produce on its own. In other words, like, well, if I try this new person or if I try this new position, like maybe that will give me the pleasure that intuitively she felt like she should get. And uh, she'd had general cutting done to her when she was very young and didn't even know it was done to her. She didn't find out till later in life because, you know, like she wasn't looking at that part of her body. She wasn't comparing her body to other women. Um, so she didn't find it until later in life when she did, she's like, oh my goodness, like now these experiences I've had, these feelings I've had make a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. So women who've been um, circumcised or had genital cutting often report experiences or feelings or patterns that are very similar to what we think of as uh, male patterns around sexuality that maybe are just patterns that people who whose bodies don't have the natural pleasure are acting out in some way, right? Um, and it, but again, like, you know, this is someone reporting their own experience. I, I'm not, um, every person is going to be different. I'm, um, I'm certain there are both men and women who've had these experiences who, who are totally, you know, they're having wonderful relationships, but there is a difference in the sensation. Why did America start making it so commonplace? And on the first day of, on the day of birth, on the first day of life? 
there was a massive increase in the circumcision rate when hospital birth became the norm. So when hospital birth became a norm, there was this big campaign against midwives, against home birth. It was portrayed by the medical professionals as dirty. Um, you can also look into the history of medicine of how, uh, you know, the it became a sort of very different profession, very uh, standardized because of pharma, because uh, people could patent drugs and make money off that. And, and herbalists and other natural practitioners were sort of pushed out. So there's a larger history of medicine that this fits into where normal aspects of life were medicalized and turned into something that people could make a profit off of. And, and birth was part of that. And so when hospital birth became the norm, circumcision was something that they could profit from. And uh, a lot of it also occurred around and during World War II where there was, uh, I think, a fear from a lot of, uh, especially Jewish physicians, that they would stand out in some way if they were different because of this, for for obvious reasons, right? Um, but all, you know, there, there's that. There's also the profit motive. So it kind of became normative over the course of hospital birth, and and the way that hospital birth was initially done, they would basically drug the woman, and she would wake up later and have a baby, and so. Uh, even up until the 80s, when people go to the hospital, you'd sign a blanket consent form that basically said the hospital gets to do whatever they want. They're the doctors. They're in charge. Um, and this was just part of it. So if you're if you're uh, someone in that position of power and then the hospital can make money off of it, and there's some physicians in the system who are, you know, um, it's part of their culture and they, they see they're very afraid of being different in this way. Well, why not make it normal and make more money off of it? So I think the hospital birth was a big, big part of why it became the norm in America. And also it it, it was done throughout the English speaking world during the Victorian era. It's just that other countries had a nationalized healthcare, whereas America has a for-profit health healthcare system. So in other countries, it was an expense for the government that they could yeah. reduce. And in America, it was a profit that they could make. It makes and, sense, and, yeah. Yeah, because in so the, the UK the we have were all in the wrong direction. We have the National Health Service here, so it makes sense as to why it's not commonplace. Because the National Health Service would have to pay for it. No, the, the parents aren't going to pay for it. Yeah. Right. So it's an it's, in America, it's an added expense. You go in for your birth and you pay a certain amount, and then the added the add on of the circumcision. I've, I've heard of insurance charging between three and five thousand dollars for Whew. it. So, wow. Yeah. 15 minutes, $3,000. It's, it's, um, it is a, at least a billion dollar industry. Wow. That is just, yeah, mind blowing. There was a guy in your documentary who mentioned about, um, HIV and how they thought that, um, and how they marketed circumcision as this will prevent HIV. And so that was another kind of propaganda campaign for parents in the 80s and 90s that their sons wouldn't be able to contract HIV. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I think that that's the more recent one. Uh, and it came out of these sort of randomized controlled experiments in Africa where they were, first of all, a lot of the people involved in those were interested in, or circumcision proponents, proponents prior to these experiments being done. Um, the experiments have been criticized a lot because more people left the study than stayed in. The 
group that was circumcised got education in how to use condoms and use condoms at a higher rate. So right there, I mean, there are really studies of using condoms at a higher rate. Turns out that prevents sexually transmitted diseases, you know, who knew? Uh, and so those studies were then used to justify spending millions of dollars on circumcision campaigns in Africa. And I, I, there's someone I know who's a researcher who's doing a whole book specifically just on these campaigns. And, and one of the things he's told me is that very often the people in the, the World Health Organization and other organizations that are writing the policy papers saying, oh, we need to do these campaigns are also, who would have thought, people who have companies that manufacture circumcision devices. Yeah. And the device they recommend for the campaign is theirs. And what do you know? They're going to get a multi-million dollar order for that. Uh, so there's a there's a lot of weird stuff around those campaigns. And, and the, camp the, the studies themselves probably couldn't have been done in the United States for ethical reasons. Uh, and they're also done in Africa. And Africa is a completely different environment than the United States. So it's one of those things where there's a thought terminating cliche that's come out of like, well, it prevents HIV. Like, well, great. I, that, that must be why we're doing it. You know, that must be why, um, people started doing this however many years ago it was, that was the reason, you know, uh, and, and then it allows people to have this sort of, you know, they don't have to think about it or focus on it. Um, but once you get, again, once you get into the data behind it, it's, uh, very shady and, the it's also not I, I i don't think most people in the western world are that worried about their children getting sexually transmitted diseases before the age of 18. that's a mm. it's probably not something that children are experiencing and, and if they are there's a bigger problem than than this you know itself um so yeah it's, it's one of those things where i, I could I, you know, the first version of that sequence going to the HIV studies that I did when I was working on the film was like an hour long because we, there is that much data we can go into. Um, but each piece of it is, you know, a whole thing that you could basically end the argument. So the moment you learn that one group use condoms at a higher rate, well, that kind of invalidates the whole thing. Um, once you see the financial incentives, like, well, that brings the whole thing into question. Um, once it's, you look at the fact that it's in Africa and not the Western world, well, that kind of brings the whole thing into question, right? Um, but it's it's the purpose of of that is and those studies is not necessarily the science itself, but the amount of profit it makes, and then the production of essentially a thought terminating cliche that prevents people from looking at the issue. Well, that's kind of the key, the the, the thought terminating cliche, because you know, like my mum, with the best intentions, just said, "Yeah, but we do it because it's more hygienic." And mm -hmm. sometimes it doesn't matter how much data and information you give people if they want to believe something because it fits with their, you know, ideology, then they will. You know, we've seen that. We see it in many different aspects of society. Um, I've certainly seen it a lot over the last few years. And, you know, you can tell them a whole bunch of stuff about it. But, you know, we can say, no, it doesn't make any difference to hygiene or it doesn't prevent HIV. And they'll go, but the doctors told us it prevented HIV. And you can tell them it doesn't make a difference because they're not really at risk of getting HIV before the age of, you know, whatever. And it, and it doesn't play into the decision that they're going to make necessarily. And it also kind of speaks to the this idea that I talk about a lot, that medical research isn't the gospel. 
<laughs> because every medical research paper is flawed in some way and has bias to it. And this just kind of shows that a little bit more. You know, I think there's a misconception that that people make decisions based on data or reason. Mm -hmm. And I, I've researched this a lot. And I don't think that people make decisions even based just on evidence, but who the evidence comes from. Yeah. That we're, we're not rational beings as much as relational beings. Mm -hmm. And so you hearing that from your mom or from a person in your family is different than if it comes from a stranger and if it comes from your doctor it's different than if it comes from you know someone you saw on the internet and so i think a lot of the ways that people make decisions are based on who's telling them something and their relationship to that person and is this someone i trust is this someone i feel good around is this someone who i think has my interests um you know i read uh, one story um there's a book about persuasion where the woman, there's an author speaking about someone who got out of a cult and what brought them out of the cult was that their spouse wasn't in the cult and their spouse, um, they said, well, this person loves me. So if they're telling me this, then uh, they must, they, I trust them basically. Mm -hmm. And part of the challenge with this issue is that it brings those relationships into question. It brings people's relationships to their family, um, the, the spiritual leader in their, their community, the, the doctor in their life. And it sounds like for you that, that part of what might have allowed you to open your mind and look at it from a different perspective is that you have values and relationships with people outside the medical system and a set of values that is from a, a, a very open-minded spiritual tradition of, you know, essentially interest in um, natural health and things like that. And so in that community, there is less of an authority placed in uh, studies and doctors and things like that. And, and I think the power that those things have isn't necessarily from what they actually say, because if you actually start digging through the studies, a lot of them are really you know highly questionable and there's all sorts of things going on. But from the authority they project, from the cultural constructs around that, oh, this, this is authoritative, this is what's true. And it is uh, as questionable as as any religion. I'll put it that way. It is, you know, there's a sense in which people put the language is the same, right? People put their faith in them. Yeah. They put their trust in them. Um, and that, that that you know, people don't realize that doctors, especially in in the American medical system, are basically salesmen. Yeah. They have financial interests. Um, they get profit from from selling you certain things if, if they prescribe something there are you know drug companies that will give them a percentage or a, essentially a commission for that um and so people haven't caught up to the fact that they're basically commission-based salesmen yet um but it's a, it's it's one of those things where the i think part of the challenge with this is that um i think the reason and evidence is all on the side of keeping your children intact but there's this whole other element of people's relationships and values and, and other stuff that needs to get sorted out. And I, I personally, I think that's good. Like I want people to have conversations about those things and um, sort through them, but uh, it does bring up some feelings. So it certainly does. If I had to ask you to kind of summarize, why do you believe that circumcising 
a baby boy is not the way forward, is not the best for that child, how would you summarize it? In my own personal values, I would say that I don't, and I didn't, I have a, I have a son, because I love my children. Because I think that they were brought into the, the it, as a parent, my role isn't to carve them up and turn them into what I think they should be or what people in society think they should be. I think that they're they're born perfect the way they are, and it's my job to discover who they are and help nurture that. And my child was born with a certain body. Part of that body is a foreskin. It wouldn't occur to me to remove any part of him emotionally or physically. So he's he's perfect and whole just the way that he is. And my job as a parent is to go through the things that I was taught growing up, my own cultural conditioning, my own trauma, and to heal that as much as possible so that I can make sure that the only things I pass on to my son are the things that serve him and that will help him become the best man that he can be. So that that is my value system that I think that my role as a parent is to nurture, not to cut. And before we, we end, is there anything I've missed that I haven't picked up on from the documentary um, that you'd like to touch on or to go into more depth on? Oh, there's, I could talk for another <laughs> 20 hours about this subject, but I think that's a good note to end on. Okay, perfect. Brendan, thank you so much. I've so appreciated um, having my mind opened to this conversation. I really believe that it is our moral obligation as human beings to open ourselves up to things however uncomfortable they may be and you've done that for me with this conversation so thank you so much thank you i appreciate you having me on and being willing to listen take care Whew, that was some episode opened my mind and my heart to many um questions that i need to ask that we all need to ask that we need to start thinking about as i said earlier this is a debate about informed choice and about preventative health. So I really hope that this opens some questions for you and that you enjoyed listening. I mean, enjoy might be the wrong word. It's very uncomfortable, maybe for some people, maybe for others, you're like, yes, thank you for having this conversation. Um, so thank you for taking the time to listen and for being here. Thank you to our sponsors for this season, Amrita and Sensate. You can get all the details about discount codes for these amazing brands on my website and in the show notes of this episode. Do check out my website at the moment. I have a lot of offerings going on. So my business course, the Female Entrepreneur Academy, which I'm so excited about, my purpose membership, if you want to work with me on a monthly basis in a group community in a circle setting um, and of course the Recondition Your Life Academy which we launch twice or three times a year depending on how I'm feeling. Um, if you enjoyed the episode please do share with someone else who you think might enjoy it or might um, enjoy listening to it or require listening to it and leave me a review and a nice five-star rating if you feel called to. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you.